It is our honor to be hosting Ambassador John Bolton. Uh, he has, uh, after uh, studies at uh, both Yale College and Yale Law School, uh, he followed a somewhat different path from some of those graduates. Uh, he's had a distinguished career uh, made up very significantly of public service. Uh, he has served under four different presidential administrations. Uh, he has had positions ranging from an Assistant Attorney General, Assistant Secretary of, of State for International Organizations, uh, Under Secretary of, of State for Arms Control, uh, and then Ambassador to the UN. Uh, and now he is serving as the 27th National Advisor to the National Security Council, National Security Council Advisor. And I should say on that, um, I'm taking the number 27 from Wikipedia, so it may be wrong. But, um, uh, in addition to all of his very distinguished public service, and I'm not going to spend the time to go through it all, uh, he, and in addition to some uh, considerable amount of time at the American Enterprise Institute, um, his, uh, in his background uh, back at Yale, there was, a, there was a link to the Federal Society before the Federal Society existed. Uh, he was a student of both Judge uh, Robert Bork and, uh, and, and uh, well, they were both professors at the time, and, uh, and Ralph Winter, and uh, had done some distinguished early uh, work in his legal career as, as well uh, in, in, one of, in one of the major uh, cases that went to, oh, it ultimately went to the Supreme Court. So anyway, a wonderfully distinguished career. We are really honored to have him. And without further ado, please welcome Ambassador John Bolton. Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Jane, for your kind introduction. Uh, I want to thank you as well as Dean Reuter for the invitation to be here today. It's a real honor. Uh, the Federalist Society has made an enormous uh, difference in American uh, law and the legal profession. Uh, as Gene mentioned, uh, when I was in law school, it was a pretty small crowd. In fact, uh, at the time I was there, uh, Bob Bork was nominated to be Solicitor General by President Nixon. And uh, Ralph Winter uh, said, looking at, uh, at that nomination, that the first sentence in the New York Times story the next morning should be, yesterday, President Nixon appointed as his new Solicitor General 20% of all the conservatives at Yale Law School. So obviously, times have changed, due in no small part to the, to the Federalist Society. Uh, and I'm really grateful for this uh, opportunity. Uh, I'm here to make a major announcement on US policy toward the International Criminal Court, or ICC. After years of effort by self-styled global governance advocates, the ICC, a supranational tribunal that could supersede national sovereignties and directly prosecute individuals for alleged war crimes, was agreed in 1998. For ICC proponents, this supranational independent institution has always been critical to their efforts to overcome the perceived failure of nation states, even those with strong constitutions, representative governments, and the rule of law. In theory, the ICC holds perpetrators of the most egregious atrocities accountable for their crimes, provides justice to the victims, and deters future abuses. In practice, however, the court has been ineffective, 
unaccountable, and indeed outright dangerous. Moreover, this is uh, Code Pink, my friends who follow me around, so I, I apologize for the background noise, but there we go. Moreover, the largely outspoken but always central aim of its most vigorous supporters was to constrain the United States. The objective was not limited to targeting individual U.S. service members, but rather America's senior political leadership and its relentless determination to keep our country secure. The ICC was formally established in July 2002 following the entry into force of the Rome Statute. In May 2002, however, President George W. Bush authorized the United States to unsign the Rome Statute because it was fundamentally illegitimate. The ICC and its prosecutor had been granted potentially enormous, essentially unaccountable powers, and alongside numerous other glaring significant flaws, the International Criminal Court constituted an assault on the constitutional rights of the American people and the sovereignty of the United States. In no uncertain terms, the ICC was created as a freewheeling global organization claiming jurisdiction over individuals without their consent. According to the Rome Statute, the ICC has authority to prosecute genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes of aggression. It claims automatic jurisdiction, meaning that it can prosecute individuals even if their own governments have not recognized, signed, or ratified the treaty. Thus, American soldiers, politicians, civil servants, private citizens, and even all of you sitting in this room today are purportedly subject to the court's prosecution. Should a party to the Rome Statute or the chief prosecutor suspect you of committing a crime within a state or territory that has joined the treaty? To protect American service members from the ICC, in 2002, Congress passed the American Service Members Protection Act, or ASPA, which at the time uh, some uh, uh, dubbed the Hague Invasion Act. This law, which enjoyed broad bipartisan support, authorizes the president to use all means necessary and appropriate, including force, to shield our ser service members and the armed forces of our allies from ICC prosecution. It also prohibits several forms of cooperation between the United States and the court. I was honored to lead the U.S. efforts internationally to protect Americans from the court's unacceptable overreach, starting with unsigning the Rome Statute. At President Bush's direction, we next launched a global diplomatic campaign to protect Americans from being handed over to the ICC. We negotiated over 100 binding bilateral agreements to prevent other countries from delivering U.S. personnel to the ICC. It remains one of my proudest achievements. Unfortunately, we were unable to reach agreement with every nation in the world, particularly those in the European Union, where the global governance dogma is strong. And last fall, our worst predictions about the ICC's professed and overbroad prosecutorial powers were confirmed. 
In November of 2017, the ICC prosecutor requested authorization to investigate alleged war crimes committed by U.S. service members and intelligence professionals during the war in Afghanistan, an investigation neither Afghanistan nor any other state party to the Rome Statute requested. Literally any day now, the ICC may announce the start of a formal investigation against these American patriots who voluntarily signed on to go into harm's way to protect our nation, our homes, and our families in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. The ICC prosecutor has requested to investigate these Americans for alleged detainee abuse, and perhaps more, an utterly unfounded, unjustifiable investigation. Today, on the eve of September the 11th, I want to deliver a clear and unambiguous message on behalf of the President of the United States. The United States will use any means necessary to protect our citizens and those of our allies from unjust prosecution by this illegitimate court. We will not cooperate with the ICC. We will provide no assistance to the ICC and we certainly will not join the ICC. We will let the ICC die on its own. After all, for all intents and purposes, the ICC is already dead to us. The United States bases this policy on five principal concerns about the court, its purported authority and its effectiveness. First, the International Criminal Court unacceptably threatens American sovereignty and U.S. national security interests. The, in, the prosecutor in The Hague claims essentially unfettered discretion to investigate, charge, and prosecute individuals, regardless of whether their countries have acceded to the Rome Statute. The court in no way derives these powers from any grant of consent by non-parties to the statute. Instead, the ICC is an unprecedented effort to vest power in a supranational body without the consent of either nation states or the individuals over which it purports to exert jurisdiction. It certainly has no consent whatever from the United States. As Americans, we fully understand that consent of the governor is a prerequisite to true legitimacy and we reject such a flagrant violation of our national sovereignty. To make matters worse, the court's structure is contrary to fund American Amer fundamental American principles, including checks and balances on authority through the separation of powers. Our founders believed that a division of authority among three separate branches of government would provide the maximum level of protection for individual liberty. The International Criminal Court, however, melds two of these branches together, the judicial and the executive. In the ICC structure, the executive branch, the office of the prosecutor, is an organ of the court. The framers of our Constitution considered such a melding of powers unacceptable for our own government, and we should certainly not accept it in the ICC. Other governments may choose systems which reject the separation of powers, but not the United States. There are no adequate mechanisms to hold the court and its personnel accountable or curtail its unchecked powers when required. ICC proponents argue that corrupt or ineffective judges can be removed by a two-thirds vote of parties to the Rome Statute, 
and that a prosecutor can be removed by a majority vote. However, I ask everyone in this room today, would you consign the fate of American citizens to a committee of other nations, including Venezuela and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and entities that are not even states, like the Palestinian Authority? You would not. I would not. And this administration will not. The ICC's Assembly of States Party uh, cannot supervise the court any more than the United Nations General Assembly can supervise the UN bureaucracy. Recent allegations of mismanagement and corruption among ICC personnel make this perfectly clear. The first prosecutor elected by the Assembly of States Parties attempted to protect a high-ranking government official from prosecution, assisted a businessman with links to violations in Libya, and shared confidential court documents with Angelina Jolie. I can't imagine why. In short, the International Criminal Court unacceptably concentrates power in the hands of an unchecked executive who is accountable to no one. It claims authority separate from and above the Constitution of the United States. It is antithetical to our nation's ideals. Indeed, this organization is the founder's worst nightmare come to life, an elegant office building in a faraway country that determines the guilt or innocence of American citizens. Second, the International Criminal Court claims jurisdiction over crimes that have disputed and ambiguous definitions, exacerbating the court's unfettered powers. The definitions of crimes, especially crimes of aggression, are vague and subject to wide-ranging interpretation by the ICC. Had the ICC existed during the Second World War, America